Okay, so how how might we um, think about this uh, teaching about clinging and dukkha? Uh, how might we conceive of it and this aim of non-clinging? How might we conceive of that and approach it in practice in ways that do open up uh, the, the full depth of what is possible and do uh, not constrain the breadth of um, beauty and possibility for us in in our lives. What what are, what are the ways? Uh, what are the possibilities of conceiving and approaching and practice this area, this theme of the teaching? <clears throat> so there's a few ways into this we could go, but let, let me try and say something uh, briefly about it. Um, one possibility is, you know, to take up this theme, not to actually wait until we're in the grip of some uh, obsessive contraction of clinging around something or other and then try and let go of that. Um, important as that is to, to address those kind of um, states of mind and states of being when they arise and how can we, how can we find some relief, how can we see in a different way. But actually to take up this theme of clinging and craving um, as, as a theme and to run with it even when it seems like there's not much craving going on. So for example, in sitting or walking meditation, standing meditation, whatever, um, can actually, as I said, as I mentioned in the, in the last talk, um, in the first part of this talk, actually begin to get um, to get familiar and, and more and more sensitivity to the experience of craving and clinging. This experience of something contracting in, in the mind and the body. Um, in, even when there's no thought there, something's contracting towards a sensation, towards an idea, towards an um, image, um, away from. So it could be, again, uh, uh, grasping at something or pushing something away, grasping or aversion. Um, and this subtle feeling we get more and more familiar with. And we notice this is dukkha. This is dukkha. This contraction itself feels unpleasant. And as I said, it might be much subtler than even noticeable in the musculature. We're talking about just the sense of the, the subtle body, the energy body, the sense of the space of the mind. Feeling it, feeling its dukkha. We're talking about subtle dukkha now. Um, feeling that subtle dukkha and relaxing, relaxing the subtle body, relaxing the energy, relaxing that tension that's come in with that grasping of clinging craving. Releasing it. It's actually working directly with uh, the the energy of that um, that contraction and releasing the contraction. Now you could, as I said in, in, in the first part, you could think about the object, you could contemplate its impermanence, etc. Or you can work directly with with the actual energetics of of cleaning your craving. So that's just just an alternative way. And if you start doing this and you start actually getting quite um, skilled, there's an art in this, and you start to develop um, a sensitivity to said, and it gets more subtle, because when I let go of, when I release a certain amount of craving, um, calmness comes into the being, the body, the mind, there's an openness, there's a calmness, and that calmness, like when the water is calm, well, in a pond, or, or a lake, or something, I can actually pick up even more subtle levels of craving. 
So uh, then I can feel that very subtle and release those, and even more calm. So the very calmness that's um, made possible through through the release, again and again, of finding some craving, releasing it, finding some craving, releasing it, the calmness that can uh, open up through that actually allows me to go deeper, more subtle into the process. So... This is actually a very enjoyable process. Most people who, who work that way in practice, it's a certain way of working, it's a very, very lovely way to practice. Very lovely. Uh, all kinds of beauty and softening and ease comes in. And I start to notice something. First thing is, oh yes, when I let go of the craving, the dukkha releases. So we could say, the dukkha is being fabricated by the craving. So I really get, I feel viscerally in in my felt experience again and again. I just see craving, dukkha, craving, dukkha. And I feel it, I feel its tension, and I feel the ease, the relief of the dukkha right there. Okay? And dukkha here means something really quite broad in its range. Really uh, from quite gross to really, really quite subtle. But as I as I develop this practice and work with it and enjoy it and 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 and, and develop my sensitivity and my my the art of it, I also start to realize that um, the sense of self is also fabricated with and by the craving. In other words, the more craving, um, the more. Uh, the, the more solid the sense of self, the more contracted, the more separate from others or from the world. So this sense of self, I start to see it, like the dukkha, move up and down on a spectrum of fabrication. Sometimes it's so solid, so dense, so separate. And when I let go of craving, when I let go at the deeper end of this spectrum, so the whole sense of self gets much lighter, much more transparent, much, um, much more melted, much uh, less well-defined its edges, more melts into a kind of oneness, etc., or it begins to dissolve in different ways. Uh, and then corresponding, there's a, there's a mutual dependence the other way. The stronger the sense of self, the more, the more that tends to build craving, unless we come in and work with it this, this other way by releasing. But the sense of self, the, the, the experience of dukkha and the experience of self are dependent on craving. More craving, more self, if you like. Uh, less craving, less self gets fabricated. Very interesting. It doesn't stop there either. Because as I, as again, as I develop this practice and I enjoy it and I get into it and I feel the yumminess of it, I start to see not just dukkha, not just the sense of myself in the moment, but also the sense of the very objects that I'm paying attention to and the sense of the very world that I feel myself to be in. That too gets correspondingly more solid, more separate, more of an issue, more prominent in consciousness to the degree that I am craving. More craving, uh, more more solid and more dense and more uh, real, if you like, the, 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 the world becomes. More oppressive. 
let go of craving, let go deeper level, start to see these dependencies, start to see objects too begin to uh, fade out, they begin to melt, they begin to blur. The very perception of objects, the very perception of the world is also dependent on craving to a certain extent. Now people can, uh, some, some people this practice really works and can take it very, very deep. Other people it sort of comes to a, a limit and they have to slightly change the practice or move to something else. But basically one way of understanding what's happening there is that we are at any moment in time always inevitably engaging a way, what I would call a way of looking. And that's a shorthand phrase. What it really means is a way of looking, a way of perceiving, a way of relating, and a way of conceiving. And I use this word conceiving not just to mean thinking about. So even when I'm not thinking, I'm still conceiving. I'm still vaguely feeling there's a me and an it. There's a self, a subject, and an object, and it's happening in time. Even if it's just this present moment, nothing else going on but the consciousness and the object and a present moment. That's still conception. I've got the tripod there, subject, object, time, still conception. So I use this word conceiving to, to mean something much, much deeper and more pervasive and more subtle than thinking, but it also includes thinking. So way of looking is the way of wrapped up altogether in any moment, the way of relating, the way of you know, perceiving, seeing, sensing, uh, and, and the way of conceiving. All that together, just for shorthand, calling the way of looking. And in any moment, there's always a way of looking. There's always a way of looking. Now that way of looking might have a lot of clinging in, or it might have less clinging, or it might have really a little clinging, it might have really, really, really a tiny, only the subtlest clinging. But always at some moment, I'm somewhere, uh, the mind, the being, is somewhere on that spectrum of how much clinging and what kinds of clinging are going on in the way of looking. And I start to see, I start to make connections here, dependent on the way of looking, including how much and what kind of clinging is going on, Dependent on that is my experience. The experience of dukkha, certainly experience of self as well. And experience of the object that I'm paying attention to, the objects and the world around me, also the experience of time, all kinds of things. More clinging, more fabrication of dukkha, of self, of objects, of world. Less clinging, less fabrication. So there is, as I said here, a, a sense, uh, a spectrum of subtlety. Uh, ex- gets extremely subtle, but and, and, uh, and as we all know, can be very, very gross. The level of clinging and the solidity that comes into all these um, these experiences of dukkha, of self, of other, of world. So, when you start to explore this way, uh, apart from the loveliness of, of this practice, um, so uncovering more subtle levels of dukkha is actually... Um, contrary to what it might sound at first, is, oh, that's horrific, this sort of excavation of more and more dukkha, more and more clinging, suffering. No, because I'm feeling dukkha, I'm releasing it, I'm finding ways to releasing it, actually it feels very beautiful. There's great beauty, great, as I said, yumminess, really, in this practice. Really, really lovely way of practicing. But as I start to do this, the whole distinction between words like clinging and craving also starts to, to melt. So, so it's, it's okay, it's valid at a certain level, but actually it's not really getting to the really juicy stuff. Uh, it's not really opening things out in, in a very deep way to hang on 
to cling, in effect, to a distinction between craving and clinging, for instance. When I start to see, if I, if as I'm just picking this one one way of practicing as as a way, and could could pick another one, when I start to see <coughs> the dependent arising and the fabrication of um, my entire experience, but let's just say. Uh, for now, just of self, but also of objects, as I said. The dependent arising, the arise dependent on the way of looking, dependent on the mind, and dependent, essentially, on the clinging. Uh, the fabrication, if we say the same thing, in other words, the fabrication of the sense of self, the fabrication of the appearances of things, and of objects, and of time, and of world, and all of that, dependent on clinging. And I start to understand, what does it mean to say that the self is empty? What does it mean to say that appearances appear, but they are empty? They're dependent arisings, they're fabrications, they're illusory. They do not exist. This self sense that seems so real, this object sense that seems so real, this thing before me, this thing in my mind, this emotion, whatever it is, seems so real, it's a dependent arising, it's a, a fabricated illusion, it is not a thing in itself without the mind clinging uh, at, at it or to it. Start to understand, probably start to see it first more more easily with with the self, but but it can happen in different ways, and then and then maybe that leads to uh, another kind of practice. Right? Maybe I see a certain amount of of the fabrication of the self, the dependent arising, the emptiness of the self, through this um, developed art of letting go of clinging and craving, <clears throat> and I start to kind of have a conviction: yeah, this self is an illusion. And so when it feels like I'm looking at something and I say, oh, that's me, it's me, uh, I am this mind, or I am this consciousness, or that is my body, or this is my emotion, or whatever, <clears throat> um, I start to see, oh, that's kind of an illusion, because I've seen this whole self is, is a construction, a concoction, a fabrication, it's a sankhara in the Buddha's words. Then maybe I can move to another kind of practice, which is, let me just dwell in my sitting meditation, in my walking meditation, my standing meditation, and just whatever arises, I'm regarding it as anatta. Atta means self, uh, in Pali, anatta means not self. This is not self, this is not me, this is not mine. So this becomes a way of looking. <clears throat> and some people can um, just move straight into that practice, other people need to do another practice that enables it a little bit but at some point I could, if I want change practices and move into that it's another way of looking I'm, I'm, I'm regarding whatever comes up as anatta, just whatever comes up is not self, is not me, not mine now this isn't a big laborious thinking process, it's something, it's, it's a way of looking, it's almost Im- it, it, it's immediate, it's something that's permeating my very perceiving, um, it's a conception for sure, um, but it's also a, a, a cutting uh, or replacing of the usual unconscious conception, which is, this is me, this is mine, we don't often think that. And we have a sense, I look at my hand, it's, it's my hand, it's not yours, it's mine. A uh, memory comes up as mine. Um, I don't even have to think this, but that conception is operating naturally. So we're just kind of letting that more usual conception go away and replacing it with another conception, not me, not mine. That becomes the way of looking. 
And again, this can be extremely powerful. Again, so it's a beautiful, beautiful practice to develop as an art. And there's lots to it. You know, there's, um, like any practice, it has uh, lots of subtleties and nuts and bolts. And we need to learn how to navigate it. And so we can really develop it. Uh, very, very beautiful. What will happen? Something similar to what we described in that practice of releasing craving. The world of appearances, the sense of self, the world of objects, even as I pay attention to them, they fade. Not because they're impermanent, because I'm releasing the clinging. I'm releasing the clinging and I see, oh, they fade. They don't necessarily move to this fast, momentary um, impermanence. I'll come back to that in a second, the sense of rapid impermanence. They fade in the sense that they blur, they dissolve, they fade into white light or into blackness or whatever. They disappear. So, for instance, paying attention to, um, again, the pain in my back or in my, in my knees or whatever, and I'm, I'm saying anatta, anatta, and maybe even the consciousness that knows this vedana, you know, this unpleasant vedana, it's also anatta, anatta. I develop that skill. Take, takes takes time. Uh, really, really an art to develop here, and in stages usually. I've talked about it elsewhere. I'm, not, I'm going very quickly now. Um, and and it's not that then I then see this rapid impermanence of vedana. No, I actually see that that unpleasant Vedna will, I'm not trying to push it away with this anatta way of looking, uh, but I, I, it's almost like it doesn't matter. I've, I've let go of the clinging of believing it's me or mine, and and the the Vedna itself first goes towards, actually it might go towards pleasant, funnily enough, but eventually it goes towards neutrality. What was unpleasant either goes um, loses its unpleasantness more and more until... And, and may go through a stage of being actually pleasant, and eventually, if I keep doing it, keep doing it, even on the pleasant vedana, becomes neutral. And then eventually, even those neutral sensations are uh, disappear. There's no sensation there in the knee anymore. I'm staring right at it. It's not that I'm not paying attention. I'm certainly not distracted. It's faded. It's unfabricated. And I start to see, again... Dependent on the way of looking is is the construction of my experience of my perception appearance and, and 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 what appears to me, and this practice can go really deep the anatta in terms of how much it can deconstruct or unfabricate the world of appearances, and then. Again, based on that practice, maybe I really start to have um, a conviction because I see it again and again. I, I start to see whatever appears, whether I take it as me or mine or, or whatever, it is empty. Not just that it doesn't, it is not me and it is not mine, but it is in itself empty. It's a, an illusory appearance, to borrow the B- Buddha's terminology. It's a, it's a fabrication. It's a concoction. It's a, it's a construction. Construction dependent on the way of looking. If I look in a certain way, uh, the world appears and it appears very solid. If I look in other ways, it appears, but it appears much less solid. And if I look in certain ways, certain ways of looking, if I, if, if I look, um, if I pay attention in certain ways of looking, it does not appear. This thing that was troubling me, this thing that I loved, this thing that was neutral, fades. 
And and this undermines, when I see this again and again, it begins to undermine, make the connections, it begins to undermine my belief in uh, the, the reality of things, the reality of experiences at any level, and we're talking the atomic uh, components of experience, very rapid, the reality of anything at all, uh, I cannot believe that they have an independent reality, independent of the way of looking. That belief that they do have an independent reality is the most fundamental level of avijja, of, of delusion. And so in the tradition, especially picked up, especially in the Mahayana tradition, clinging, this word clinging has a much broader range of meaning than um, just the kind of gross obsession, etc., that hanging on to something for grim, grim life. Um, just the belief that something is, uh, has a reality independent of the way, I'm, uh, of, of, the way of looking the way the uh, independent of the mind, if you like. Um, just that belief. And again, we don't walk around thinking about this. This is how we tend to see, how we tend to view, how we tend to experience. It's the default way of looking at a very deep level. That belief, that avijja is clinging. So that clinging starts to, uh, or rather avijja, this basic level of delusion, of ignorance, is a form of clinging. It's regard, avidya is, is uh, grouped together with, um, with other forms of clinging. And then I can start to actually employ another way of looking when this conviction goes through these development of these arts, of these practices, when, when, this, when this understanding, when I have conviction in my heart that something in me knows, I've seen them fade dependently on the way of looking, and I've seen how clinging and self-view constructs the fabrication, fabricates objects, constructs the appearances of seemingly solid separate things. And when I've seen that enough, something in my heart is convinced, and I can adopt deliberately, play with, entertain a way of looking um, in practice, in whatever posture in practice that just sees things and, and the way of looking says empty, 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 meaning um, I, I know, I don't have to have this shorthand whole thinking thing, but it's, again, it's very fluid, very direct, very light way of looking. I know you're empty, I've seen, I know you're empty because I know that you fade when um, when when the way of looking is has less avijja in it, when, when there's uh, less clinging to the self you when I see you as not self or whatever it is so I can start to look at things and just see them as empty, empty, empty and what happens then? an even deeper level of fading and this applies to everything without question the barest um, sense of subject just a sense of consciousness a momentary consciousness or a vast eternal seeming awareness empty fabrication much less fabricated than our normal sense of consciousness or awareness, but still a fabrication, empty. The present moment, however brief that seems or eternal that seems, fabrication, empty. Whatever object, however vague, however light, however spacious, however transparent seeming, empty, fabrication. And there's an even deeper fading because the avidya is um, being withdrawn, being undermined in that moment.
you can go into this, the whole process, taking up the teaching of clinging and going deeper and deeper with my understanding of what's involved in, in this term clinging and how to actually work with it to not cling in the moment. And you actually start to see that even attention, so to have any experience, I need to in some way pay attention to that experience. Even if it's a very open attention, I'm attending to the totality, vast awareness. There's attention there. And the mind is actually, in a subtle way, clinging. Uh, attention works through a kind of clinging. I shut this out to have this experience. I, the mind kind of grasps, like a pair of calipers. It grasps at the object of, that we are paying attention to. So even attention is, is a form of clinging. So these distinctions, we go back to the thing about the 12 links of dependent origination, distinguishing between craving and clinging and sankhara, etc. The delinea- As we go deeper into the whole thing, the, the very delineations that we had started off with, and that are useful, as I said, at a certain level, um, they begin to blur. And we see how uh, clinging, craving, sankhara, um, avijja, attention, the, these, these notions overlap. They're all different forms of clinging, if you like. And even in the examples he gave earlier, um, for instance, the example of uh, me fretting over uh, hoping that this woman calls me, um, uh, you can see in that, so there's the the self-view that um, I'm, uh, what was it, that I, I, uh, uh, the self-view of of perhaps... um, I'm not attractive, or I'm not okay somehow, and 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 the belief that it would prove that I am okay and attractive if she called me, if uh, etc. Um, you can see that that avijja is already a clinging. I'm clinging to that belief, and the, and the, and the sense of self there is already a kind of clinging. My trying, uh, my tendency to view things that way, my trying to prove it, that 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 movement to prove it is also a kind of craving, a clinging. So even at that level, but certainly as you go deeper into this whole question in practice, you practice in these beautiful ways, very very delicate, very subtle, but it, enormously opening in terms of the freedom and the uh, what they open in the sense of existence, you start to see that this word clinging has a huge range of subtlety. It covers a lot of ground. And um, as I said, distinct, all kinds of distinctions start to blur and... and, and um, Overlap, etc. But essentially, I, I learn how to um, play with um, releasing clinging in the moment, and clinging in this very broad sense at different ranges of ranges of subtlety through playing with different ways of looking, and and that develops. And I see that as I do this, and I let go of clinging very, very deeply, uh, a very deep level, the the world of appearances, self, other world, time, etc., is fabricated less and less. And there's a spectrum here of clinging, of self-sense, of dukkha, of um, sense of objects, of solidity of time. All of that is, is one spectrum of fabrication. And if I develop um, the art of this, um, eventually I can... Um, language is difficult, but eventually there can be an un- a complete unfabricating Nothing is fabricated at all. No subject, no object, 
no time, past, future or present, no space. Something that language cannot, um, cannot uh, even approach, except by negatives. And through that seeing of that dependent fabrication, dependent fading, dependent unfabricating, and, and the totality of that in an experience of the unfabricated, I, I understand, need to understand something. All things, all experiences, all phenomena are empty. Empty meaning they do not exist independent of the mind, independent of the way of looking. So I start with a very, um, if you like, rudimentary and simple concepts of ways of looking. There's different ways of looking at things, and they involve different kinds of clinging to different degrees. And, and I can see a certain amount of fabrication. Um, and included, as I said, in that, in that idea of ways of looking is um, really the way of relating, the way of conceiving, the way of sensing, if you like and perceiving and framing and all kinds of things. All that's wrapped up in the way of looking. And this concept way of looking, ways of looking, and the concept of fabrication, very, very simple concepts. So um, even a beginner in meditation, actually even someone who doesn't meditate can see this. Every human being knows what papancha, if you, if you talk about papancha, every human being will recognize that. Every human being. Someone who's not gone within ten miles of a meditation cushion knows the experience of a pancha and knows the experience of coming out of a pancha into a more normal state of consciousness. So right there is a segment of this spectrum of fabrication. Papancha being much more fabricated, the self so dense, so tight, the dukkha being fabricated more intensely, um, and the sense of issue or object or whatever it is we're obsessing about also more intense, more uh, more real, more dense, all of that. More normal state of consciousness, uh, still the sense of self, very real, etc., but less oppressive, less dense, less separate, less contracted, and similarly with the issue, etc., etc., and then a beginner who's just um, uh, exposed to mindfulness and maybe even first retreat or first course in mindfulness actually gets taste of something that uh, states that are um, involve even less fabrication than the normal state. And can just a sense of even this self being less solid, less fabricated in, in different ways possible. Um, and... Um, and even more ease than what they'd known through a normal state of consciousness. So there are a little spectrum, um, papancha at one extreme end, the normal state of consciousness, if you like, every day walking around, um, and then, if you say, a state of mindfulness when it's, quote, going quite well. Um, right there are three points on a spectrum, and, the, and the, the level of mindfulness is, of those three, the, the least fabricated. So right there, it's like this isn't this isn't um, rocket science. What's possible though is to really extend that spectrum and really see how all our experience fits onto that, and in a way, the whole Dharma fits onto that. The whole Dharma is saying something about this um, spectrum of fabrication and its relationship with clinging, and what that says about the world of appearances and their apparent reality. So really what we're doing is taking these concepts of ways of looking at fabrication and through practice, through experiential playing with ways of looking, um, we're contemplating the dependence of appearances on, on the mind and on, clinging, on, on the way of looking and on clinging.
So then going back to, you know, return to, if I'm contemplating impermanence, rapid impermanence in sort of intense, um, perhaps Mahasi style, or Goenka style practice, etc. And, or, or just, uh, you know, other forms of, of practice. Um, and that's a way of looking. I'm looking at impermanence and I get into a kind of groove of seeing um, beginnings and endings of things. So it's a way of looking. It's a way of looking. Um, and then it's a way of looking that tends to, um, if you like, uh, fabricate what it sees. So I start to see process. I start to see more beginnings and endings. And I start to have a sense of this is, uh, or, or appearances begin to, to, to become more fragmented. And I start to see, oh, this is, now I'm seeing the atomic reality of things. Am I? Is it the reality? Is it the ultimate reality? Or is it just a way of looking that tends to, um, because I look in a certain way, what appears to me is conditioned by, fabricated by that way of looking? Yes, it's less fabricated than others, other ways of looking, or it fabricates less than other ways of looking. Is it the end of fabrication? No, and certainly not is um, a, a state of mindfulness the end of fabrication. As I said before, it's like, oh, now there's no papancha, there's no obsessing, I'm just with the simple experience of the pain in my chest or, or whatever it is, and therefore I'm not fabricating, because there's no papancha. No, keep open this question, what's the limit of fabrication? This seems real. Everyone seems to talk as if these things are real, bare sensations, or if I'm in a certain culture, the atomic process of, of, of mind moments and experiences. Is that the ultimate reality? Or is that just a certain level of less fabrication? So I keep this framework of ways of looking and fabrication, and I just see. Don't, don't arrest that investigation. Keep playing. Is there a way that it... Um, whatever I had taken to be the the base baseline of non-fabrication is actually still fabricated, and I can learn to unfabricate that too. Whether it's a vast awareness, whether it's um, this m- momentary uh, arisings and passings away of some impersonal process, whether it's just the sort of so-called bare attention to experiences, none of that is the end of fabrication. All of it all of those um, perceptions are still fabricated and we can go deeper than that. Now if through contemplating rapid impermanence and meditation actually there is this pop that I described or a kind of explosion and one finds oneself suddenly um, doesn't one find oneself when there's an explosion into the unfabricated, let's say, the unconditioned uh, then um, Again, why is that happening? Well, it happened because there was enough of a release of clinging in the contemplation of rapid impermanence uh, that the, the mind saw that impermanence and just let go, just let go. And it's the letting go of the clinging because it fabricates, un, sorry, because it unfabricates because clinging fabricates, so letting go of clinging unfabricates. And it's not the seeing the impermanence that reveals reality, it's seeing the impermanence that causes the mind to let go of the clinging, clinging in, in this very subtle way, and 
sometimes, because sometimes this doesn't happen, a person is just seeing clinging again and again, um, like seeing impermanence again and again, but sometimes it can release um, release the clinging at such a deep level that there is non-fabrication and, and there's an opening to the unfabricated, but still I need to understand that. So if I'm not seeing it in terms of ways of looking fabrication and clinging, I don't quite understand, as I said in, in, in the end of the, the first part, what is the relationship between this amazing unfabricated and this world of um, dukkha and appearances. I need to understand something there. So, this way of approaching, um, I've just described, this way of approaching the understanding, the conception, conceiving of what the path is, the aim of non-clinging, and, and approaching it in practice, it, it has the potential of really opening up something very radical, um, very radically inexperienced, in terms of this spectrum into depths and depths of, of, of lessening fabrication and unfabricating. All kinds of beautiful mystical experiences there, possible, and, and, and an experience of the unfabricated as well. Um, both in terms of experience, a radicality, and also in terms of understanding. Understanding. If, so you might hear this, and hopefully it at least makes a little bit of sense, but without practice it's going to be like, this is strange, I don't know what he's talking about, and it's, I don't know, um, uh, it sounds like either baffling or very far-fetched, or, uh, well, it's not the kind of thing I'm used to hearing. If I don't practice, I won't see this. If I don't practice in certain ways that allow this um, and, and, and make this understanding, I, I won't see this, I won't understand, and hearing about it certainly won't have much impact. And sometimes, as I said, even practicing in certain ways doesn't have the impact because I'm not conceiving of it. In, in, even if there's this opening or that opening or this experience or that falling away or whatever, it doesn't have the right impact or, or, or the, the impact that it could have in terms of freedom and opening up the sense of existence because I'm not conceiving it. I'm not framing it in, in a way that's actually helping it to do that. Maybe I'm limiting, as I said, my idea of this is fabricated and this is not fabricated. And I, and I, I put a, a bottom limit to my exploration. Maybe I'm just not conceiving in terms, I'm conceiving in terms of reality rather than in terms of ways of looking. And that's creating a wall that I can't go beyond. Or I'm not conceiving in terms of fabrication in a full enough way or, or even at all, you know. So this teaching, you know, the Buddha's central teaching, the Four Noble tr- Truths, <clears throat> there is Dukkha, and it arises from, from clinging, from craving, uh, as its cause, and there's the release of that, and there's ways to move towards releasing it. Um, but the shorthand version, just, you know, craving causes, clinging, craving causes Dukkha, and there's the possibility of releasing that. And the teaching of dependent origination, which is a sort of, a more detailed explanation of that. This is actually, you know, um, an analogy for that really is um, perhaps that we find ourselves, we don't know how we got there, we wake up and we're somehow, we realize, locked in a, a sort of 
what seems to be the inside of some kind of dark, semi-dark, um, I don't know, big castle or something. And there's just all these corridors and stairwells and doors which are, some of them open and some of them are locked and, and we don't know where we are and how on earth do we get out. And then we're given a map, uh, maybe a map and uh, one of those, I don't know what they're called, adjustable wrenches. You know, you can you can make it depending on the bolt that you're trying to undo, make it larger, smaller. And then looking at the map, I try and decipher what's going on. I see, I start to see oh, I'm not even on the, 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 the door to get out, or the doors to get out are on the ground floor, and I'm stuck on the third floor, so how do I even get down to the ground floor? And there's some, with my, some doors are open, other doors on the way to the ground floor, I need to unscrew them with my adjustable wrench, and etc., etc. And eventually, through all these... Um, uh, Things I get, I, I find my way out. I find one of the doors and I can unscrew that and it actually leads to the fresh air, the daylight, the freedom of the outside. A completely different experience. So the Buddha's um, teaching of dependent origination is, 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 if you like, a map. The map of, of the inside of that castle. I can locate myself and then, and then I can start moving in these ways. And the teachings about clinging are like that adjustable wrench. So I can actually undo the um, the imprisonment. Okay, <laughs> that's not such a good analogy. A, it's a little too gothic, but um, but uh, yeah, there's lots of reasons why it's not such a good analogy. Um, for a start, the whole it turns out that the whole uh, castle and imprisonment is is a bit of an illusion. But um, anyway, the the point is that it's. Uh, Clinging, the teaching of clinging is a tool, and and with with skill we unlock something um, that has to do more with um, understanding, understanding uh, the dependent arising of um, appearances, um, the fabrication of the appearances of self, other, world, time, space, etc., the emptiness of these things. Yeah, maybe it wasn't such a good analogy. Never mind. Um, but but the fact is that, that clinging is a t- the teaching of clinging is a tool is a key. So it's you know the teaching don't try to repeat experiences. Um, it can be skillful at times because we can cling and get too constricted to try and repeat experiences. But actually, in a way, we need to see this many times. We need to see this dependent fabrication and dependent fading many, many times because it's such a deep, um, uh, a deep level of delusion that's entrenched there for us to believe in the reality of things. Of course, I, of course, this object in front of me, of course, this um, feeling, this sensation, or whatever it is, of course, time, of course, these are real things. Um, They exist independently of the mind. We need to see many, many times this fading, very specifically through the, the, the release of craving. So, there is... It's not that we're grasping at experiences so much, it's that we want to um, 
repeat certain experiences, including the difficult ones. Weirdly, not, we don't need to repeat them um, intentionally, but uh, because we have them anyway. But we want to see our experience going up and down on this spectrum of fabrication, dependent on clinging. I see that many, many times, and then until it becomes something in my heart knows the emptiness of all things. So if I don't understand in, in this sense, um, then the teaching just let go of everything, it won't be very deeply liberating. Just let go of everything. Yeah, I can hear that, and probably many people do hear that, in a way that presumes a certain level of realism uh, of the independent reality of what we're not clinging to. So just let go of this or that. I believe in this and that, and somehow I'm I'm letting go of it. Or, or there's some level of reality that that remains. Um, I can see that there's some construction, some fabrication, um, but there's some level of reality. Maybe that atomistic reductionism. There's just this process of um, events of consciousness and perception and Vedana and all that. And I believe that level of reality remains. Um, and then, then you get teachings which conflate impermanence and emptiness. So, to, in those, in that way of limited understanding, just to say that everything, uh, say that the self is empty, means there's nothing but impermanent moments, or to say that that could say that of anything. But emptiness is saying something much deeper than impermanence, much more radical. Or again, we might say, oh. Just let go of everything. Just being and just receiving. When I'm doing that, I'm not. I'm not engaging a way of looking. I'm just receiving purely. Um, I'm just being. I'm not trying. I'm not doing any way of looking. Oftentimes, people hear about this way of looking. Like, oh, that's interesting. 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 And then sometimes I just want to rest and not do. Not and not have a way of looking. There's always a way of looking. So if we don't understand this teaching deeply enough, some level of realism, which is, is basically delusion, avidya, remains. And then we believe in things like the atomistic reductionism perception. Or we believe that I can do something called just being, and that that's not doing. Or that I can just receive, or whatever. I can somehow have a mode of being that has no way of looking. So somehow I have to pick up this teaching of um, non-clinging, of letting go, of what it means to let go of everything. I have to approach it in in a certain way. Um, I'm not trying to live without clinging. I'm trying to use the teaching of clinging and dependent arising and fabrication and ways of looking, all of which are intimately linked with each other. And, and that functions as this adjustable wrench of this and map this... this um, This, this tool, key, if you like, to unlock something. Now, actually, I can't live without clinging. Because, when I start, this is, this is curious now, and again, without the experience of this, and without understanding a certain way, this is going to sound bizarre, but I can't live without clinging, because clinging is a part of perceiving, experiencing anything. As I said, it's part of attention. And when I really let go of clinging very deeply, in that moment, a 
appearances do not appear. There is no perception. If I really just let go of everything, the world does not appear. Self, world, time do not appear. So this is interesting. And this actually, I don't know if people, seems to me most people are not aware of this, but this actually um, caused a huge conundrum in the history of Buddhism. How does an arahant, and how does a Buddha, um, fully enlightened, therefore supposedly no avijja, no craving, how do they uh, perceive anything? Perception is part of the um, fourth link of dependent arising, um, what's called nama rupa. And if there's no avijja, and there's no craving, then actually perception does not arise. As I said, you can, t- you can experience that in meditation and know it for a fact in meditation. So, so someone says, well, the arahant, uh, or, or a Buddha, um, has a residual amount of kind of mem- karmic momentum um, that enables them to have appearances, etc., and but at their death, their final nirvana, that is dissolved, and so they're not reborn again. You know, the, the world of perception is not reborn for them. There's total unbinding of the world of perception. When it came to the Mahayana, uh, historically, a few hundred years after the Buddha's death, um, this was this was then even that explanation was a problem, because. Um, well, for a number of reasons, but if a Buddha was devoted to, even though they were completely free, completely devoid of delusion, if they were devoted to um, appearing again and again, being reborn, um, to serve suffering beings out of compassion to help people, how is it that they could have appearances? Um... You understand? They have no avijja. They have no craving. Avijja and craving, clinging, are um, part, are needed for the fabrication of appearances. So you get this very strange sort of um, basis for. Uh, that's not. That's not the right way of saying it. But from a certain perspective, you get that. That that was the um, basis for a whole complex elaboration of Mahayana philosophy. Um, I don't think it's that simple because I think the Mayan had lots of um, insights that uh, wasn't just trying to fudge an explanation of what um, how a Buddha could come back. Because in the Theravada, once a Buddha's gone, they're gone. They don't get reborn. Arahants don't get reborn, etc. Um, in the Mahayana teaching, it's there's actually a teaching uh, that's... Uh, most people respect that says only a Buddha, and not even an Arahant, but only a Buddha can contemplate the full emptiness of things and have appearances at the same time. So as I explained in the practices, for someone who's not a Buddha, um, which includes an Arahant, when they, um, if you like, lean heavily um, in attending to something, whatever it is, a sensation, a perception, when in the very attending to that object, they, they, they're 
um, leaning, if you like, or, or um, they're using a way of looking that also knows thoroughly the emptiness of, of that object, then that object fades. Only so that either um, everything fades when they fully contemplate emptiness, or they have to kind of go into a mode where they're not actually leaning so much on that insight of the emptiness. And if you like, this residual avijja, this kind of default avijja, is, is reasserting itself so that they can have appearances. So that if you're listening to this, this is so abstract, but, but it's, a, it's a funny thing. And if you, if, you, if you know this level of practice, and if you understand a certain way, you see this is true. I cannot have um, a, full experience, a full leaning on the insight of emptiness at the same time as I have the appearance of an object. It will fade to the degree that I lean on, that I allow the fullness of that of that knowing of its emptiness into the way of looking. Only a Buddha, it said, is able to see both. Both fully know the emptiness and have the appearance of things. So this, is, this seems like a very strange, abstruse, abstract Mahayana teaching, but there's a there's a reason. If you're following all this, there's a reason for it. Reasons. And then one way of conceiving of what Vajrayana practice is, tantric practice is, is it's kind of, if you like, um, and I use this word in a, in a positive sense, of faking a Buddha mind. So that we're kind of um, allowing the our, our insight of the emptiness of whatever it is we're perceiving. We're allowing that to pervade the way of looking, um, in, but in a lighter way, so that this object that I'm looking at becomes relatively transparent, and I know it's emptiness, but I'm not leaning on that um, insight into emptiness so much that it actually fades. So I'm kind of playing with walking a tightrope of keeping appearances around, but seeing them, uh, knowing them as empty. And if I lean on that insight too much of the emptiness, uh, as I'm looking at this object, I'm not going away from the object, I'm looking at it, but knowing it's emptiness, that object will fade. So tantric practice, there's much more to it involved, we're going to come back to this, but tantric practice, one, one of the aspects that's involved is this kind of faking of the Buddha mind that can actually fully know the emptiness and have the appearance. We will r- return to this, but the the point is, um, I cannot live without clinging because clinging is part of, percep- of, of of perception. Clinging is necessary for perception. Very subtle levels of clinging are necessary for perception. <coughs> On top of that. Clinging is empty too. Clinging has no inherent existence. And again, this is something that's really emphasized by the, the, um, all the, the, the great Mahayana teachers, Nagarjuna, Chandrakirti, you name it. And so they say, um, there's no grasper to be found, no self-grasping. There is no object of grasping to be found. Neither is grasping to be found. All these are empty. All these are void. All these are illusory. Pick, pick your words. There's, there's countless statements to these fact, uh, to these uh, countless instances of these statements. No grasper, no grasped, no grasping, no clinger, no clung to, no clinging. They are empty. They are illusory. 
So you put all this together and you start to have a different understanding of the whole thing. That's going to open up in, in different possibilities and certainly different level of understanding. You say, don't cling to non-clinging. It's empty and it's wrapped up in perception. Don't cling to the idea of non-clinging. So this is strange now. There is space for clinging. Because I know it's empty, because I know it's part of perception, part of the magic of appearances, there's space for clinging. Clinging uh, is given permission, if you like. So, achieved is the end of craving doesn't mean that I'm, I'm living in some way without craving. What would that mean if craving is part of perception? doesn't mean that. It means seen and understood is this relationship between um, craving, clinging, fabrication, and the lessening of craving and the lessening of fabrication and the, the um, uh, if you like, the dissolution of craving temporarily and the opening into the unfabricated. And all this implies, as I said, the emptiness of everything, of the self, of the mind, of consciousness, awareness, whatever word you want to use for it, of objects, of world, of space, of time, of clinging. Everything. Empty. Fabricated. Illusory. I can go even beyond that level of understanding. Something happens in under, in approaching it this way, in seeing it this way, in understanding something that opens up the sense of existence. Mystical opening of the whole sense of existence. Radically different sense. I am no longer being in this world that seems pretty real and attempting to try and live without clinging. Free to crave, free to play with different degrees of craving in my ways of looking, free to fabricate more or less. Skill here, art actually, art. Free to engage the art of fabrication, to let it go completely quiet, to, um, to fabricate in different ways, to different degrees. Uh, this becomes part of the practice because I understand something. So can fabricate a little, can fabricate a lot, can, can go into the unfabricated. So then, <clears throat> what we might call simple mindfulness or bare attention and the experience of the vividness of things and the simplicity of things. Um, and sometimes what people call the suchness of things when they just feels like I'm just so present, everything's so bright, it just is what it is. Uh, incidentally, that word suchness act actually means completely the opposite of that in the tradition. It means the emptiness of things, that they are not what they appear to be. They are exactly not what they appear to be. Just this, just that, exactly as it is. Suchness means emptiness, means their lack of inherent existence, means that they, they are not anything in particular. They are fabricated. They are illusory. They are not like this or like that. Strange... Um, reversal of meaning that's happened historically, especially in the West. <clears throat> There's different reasons for that, but 
won't go into that now. But that level of, uh, uh, that state of mind and that level of experience of what we call mindfulness or bare attention, the vividness that comes with that and the, the, you know, the beauty that comes with that, that's just a certain level of uh, less fabrication than normal. Um, if I'm hanging out in what some people call big mind or vast awareness or whatever, that too is a, it's um, one degree of less fabrication, and and fa- it's but it's still fabricated in a certain direction. It's beautiful vastness, big mind, everything just arising um, out of that vastness, disappearing back into it. Lovely mystical state. It's one degree of less fabrication. It's a kind, it's a certain direction of fabrication. Or if I'm seeing this rapid impermanence, this uh, atomistic process, arising, passing, arising, passing, again, it's just one degree, it's a certain degree of less fabrication and in a certain direction, fabricating according to the way of looking. Just like the vast awareness. And I can go much deeper uh, states of uh, much less fabrication, much deeper unfabricating than either of those. The vast, either the vast awareness or this atomistic process, much deeper. Um, so that, but even though really deep unfabrication, some of you might have heard of the formless jhanas. These are these are available experiences. The realm of nothingness, the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. The seventh and the eighth jhanas. These deep states of unfabricating. Of, of less fabrication, and even beyond that, as I said, to the unfabricated, the unconditioned, the unborn, the deathless. And what happens, as I said, is then I can fabricate all these different directions, and many more, actually infinite possibilities of fabrication, many, many more than that, in different directions and different degrees, and the whole um, art of fabrication, if you like. And that spectrum opens up for me and the directions of artful fabrication open up as practice, as play. All to do with ways of looking and fabrication. So living without clinging is not the point of the Dharma. But understanding, seeing the dependent origination, the dependent fading, the the fabrication, the dependent fabrication dependent on clinging, and through that seeing the emptiness of things. These are interchangeable means, the emptiness of, of all things. This is the point of the Dharma, and, and it opens so much up. Actually, even this teaching of dependent origination, all those links, in uh, we start to understand in a way that that very teaching starts to melt itself. Those links, they, they melt, they they overlap, they blur, they fade, we see they're not real things either. And again, the Gajana, other, um, the Mahayana made this very clear. All twelve links of dependent origination are illusions. They're fabricated, they're empty, they're not real, etc. Again, choose your lingo, you can find um, you can find many, many instances of that absolutely insisted upon. The teaching of dependent origination, the twelve links, this is not a reality. This is a tool. This is um, a key that then dissolves itself. Dissolves, uh, melts itself. 
that whole link in experience as as we as we open to the unfabricated, but also in understanding because we understand that these are not real things. We're not talking about separate things. We're not uh, we're not talking about um, elements, real elements or components of a real process here. There's an incredible skill of the Buddha finding concepts um, that we can pick up and use as ways of looking. Use as ways of looking. And if we, you, if we approach it in, in that spirit, we begin to see that the very ways of looking lead to other ways of looking. The whole thing kind of dissolves itself and opens up a freedom of experience, but also a freedom of understanding. It comes with understanding. Okay, so we can hear teachings and assume that what we're hearing or conclude from what we're hearing or reading, or in some instances we're actually taught um, that the Dharma is, the point is, the aim is, try to be in the world without craving or without clinging. Be kind, but because everything's impermanent, try to be in the world without craving, without clinging, and you will suffer less. So there's, a, you know, obviously there's some truth to that. But what if that we um, understand the Dharma and approach it in this teachings of dependent origination, dependent fading, fabrication, ways of looking for noble truths, clinging, all that, as keys that unlock, that unbind the um, apparent nature of reality and reveal everything as empty, reveal the world as empty, as magical illusion, And that's the point of the Dharma. And what that then allows for us becomes the point and the aim of the Dharma. Because then, as I said, we can um, shape perception. We can um, fabricate in different ways. This self is empty. I know that thoroughly. There's no self-view at all. Not process, not atoms, not big awareness, not nothing. Any self-view is empty, is fabrication. I can therefore shape this um, empty uh, self in different ways. I can fabricate different kinds of selves, fabricate different kinds of appearances of the world, of others, all kinds of things, of time, um, through the art of practice. And there's a huge range there. And the selves that I know are illusory, that I know are fabrications, that I um, fabricate deliberately and skillfully as art, they don't have to be constrained to look a certain way. I always have to look calm, especially as I'm a meditation teacher. <laughs> or I'm a Buddhist. I don't always have to look unexcited. I don't, you know, that's a certain fabrication of self. If I know it's illusory... Well, there's a lot more room to play with. There's a lot more um, dressing up, a lot more garments to try on to have fun in the uh, the magic clothes shop changing room. If you remember Mr. Ben from English TV, <laughs> you have to be a certain age. Um, okay, so this is really... Um, to me, it's really important, and, and it makes a huge difference into what we even consider the Dharma is or where we're going. 
Actually, I'll just throw one more thing, just just to point out, um, in addition to all this, that most letting go and most non-clinging involves actually another object of clinging. And there's no problem with this. It's just, it's just, excuse me, almost inevitably it's like how we don't cling. So people are just let go, just let go. Um, as if we do that independently of clinging to something else. So, you know, um, I don't know, uh, someone who's addicted to alcohol or drugs or, or, or something like that, you know, um, talk to someone who's been through that and come out the other end. They didn't just let go. There was a process there where they actually clung, and sometimes for dear life, they clung to something that was more wholesome. Maybe they clung to um, a certain... Um, ethical, you know, the fifth precept or, or whatever, through the support of the Sangha, they clung to their sila, maybe the fellowship, the 12-step fellowship, maybe even they took on the identity, I am an amhalo, my name is X, and I am an addict, I am an alcoholic. And, and that clinging to a certain identity was absolutely necessary in letting go of the addiction. Um, or in in Buddhism and all kinds of all, all kinds of um, uh, whether it's secularly conceived or or whether it's religiously conceived and all kinds of other religions, actually a person is able to let go because effectively they're clinging to a faith, some faith in something or other. Again, whether that's a secularly conceived faith or a religiously conceived faith. Um, they actually the clinging to the faith and the vision of the faith and what that faith holds out enables them to let go of this or that. Uh, even like so, there's examples from practice that I um, <clears throat> described earlier in this talk. Um, so in this anatta way of looking, um, I'm actually th- that incredible depth and beauty of letting go is allowed because effectively or realistically I'm clinging to the view of the way of looking of anatta. I cling, I'm clinging to this way of looking, see everything, everything that comes up, I'm just in that groove of, of deliberately, very subtly but deliberately, lightly seeing things as not self. So I'm, I'm effectively clinging to an insight in order to let go at a much deeper level. Or even I just say, um, I'm I'm in a state of let, letting go or resting in awareness. Some people use that phrase. Or I'm just receiving. I'm just open to things. That that still I'm in in a way of looking. Then, as I emphasised before, it's not that there's no way of looking. There's certainly a way of looking there, replete with all kinds of subtle conceptuality and a certain relationship with things, a certain mode, replete with doing. But please don't think that that state. It's relatively less doing. It still involves doing. Um, but I'm, I'm effectively clinging to that doing and that conception and that uh, way of looking in order that it, it, it... And that clinging enables letting go. So I think it was my one of my teacher's... Teacher's teacher, <laughs> I think. Ajahn Damadara, a Thai monk... Uh, <clears throat> um, not sure when he died, actually. He died quite young um, in Thailand, and a forest monk in Thailand. And I think it was him that used this analogy. Of, it's, like, it's like a ladder. 
<coughs> the Dharma and, and practice are like a ladder. So when you're climbing a ladder, you actually, to, for your feet to let go of the bottom rung, first I need to put my feet on the bottom rung, then, then to let go of the bottom rung, actually I, my hands grip um, another rung, or, or my one foot, if you like, grips or finds a basis in the next rung. And my hands, probably unless I'm trying to do it without hands, some, something's gripping something, if you like, higher or more subtle. Um, and in this way we go. So if we take the addiction example, clinging to sila is a, is a more refined clinging than clinging to alcohol. Clinging to anatta is a much more refined um, clinging than clinging to um, self-view. This is me, this is mine. Um, in its even unconscious way. Um, and, and, and then even clinging to the view of anatta, even clinging to the view of emptiness. So <clears throat> there's a way of... Um, or rather, the process of non-clinging um, develops through clinging to something else. We don't just let go. Again, we're so attracted by the simplicity, the seeming simplicity of that statement. But like with a ladder, eventually um, you reach the last rung and you can let go. You can let go of the rat ladder, or the Buddha's analogy of the raft crossing the stream, the, the river, whatever it is. You can let go of the, the ladder, the raft. Um, but it happens progressively uh, at more and more subtle levels. If I don't have a way of looking and a way ways of clinging to more subtle things, this idea of just just let go of everything, but it 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 really is pretty silly, and we'll just end up either with complete frustration or blindness to what I'm clinging to, or just this kind of like, oh well, what are you going to do? Um, you know, it's it's hard to. Uh, Maybe the real masters somewhere living in some caves can do something, uh, but basically the rest of us have just to put up with our, our delusion and our clinging. And we try and let go of the grosser clingings and we laugh at ourselves, etc. <clears throat> but much more is possible. So, it doesn't make sense as I said, to live without craving or clinging because it's involved in the fabrication of perception. It's involved in experiencing anything. But as I said at the beginning of the last talk, there's a second problem. There's a second problem with this ideal of living without clinging. In addition to what I've said in this talk, there's a second problem. Would we even really deep down want to? It's not to do with delusion, but is it what really the depths of the heart and the being want? What would it even look like, really? So this is what I want to um, explore a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.